In a way, maybe my having lived in the Civil War for a period of time kind of gives me a little bit of the sense that March 13th, 2020, when things closed, I felt like when I was sent home when I was 13 years old. And it, I told my family, I told my friends, and I told my colleagues at work, I said, it's going to be extremely hard to come back. They said, nonsense, we'll be back, because they thought it was a snowstorm. Basically, everybody's only other model for when you shut down is 1978 snowstorm in Boston. But in Lebanon, we didn't go back to school or work for months and months. And in that case, actually, long after we left for eight years, people didn't have a normal life. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Our guest today is Nubar Afayan. In 2009, Nubar started a small biotech company in Cambridge known as Moderna. In 2018, Moderna had the largest IPO of any biotech company at the time. And in 2020, Moderna became a global household name for its groundbreaking COVID-19 vaccine. Today, I talk with Nubar about what drew him to life sciences, his approach to starting and growing new businesses, and what it was like to have a front row seat to the fight against COVID. Nubar, thank you for joining me this morning. It's wonderful to have a chance to talk with you today. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So so you have quite an interesting story, and we'll get to COVID-19 and Moderna in, in a minute, but I want to start with just your childhood and what it was like growing up. You are Armenian and born in Lebanon, but when you were 13, your family had to leave, and uh, you came to Canada to escape the Civil War. I can't imagine what that was like. I was 13 playing on a soccer field in Granby, Connecticut, and you know, I always try to put myself in the headspace of folks who grew up in these really complex ways and then had great success. And so can you talk a little bit about your childhood and your family and what it was like during that time and moving to Canada? Happy to, happy to. And and of course, when it's actually happening, you don't really realize it. You just kind of live. And then afterwards, as you get older and you think about it and the influence it may have had, you can do your own psychoanalysis and find lots of roots for your behavior or excuses for your behavior sometimes in, <laughs> right. in how you grew up. So Beirut was where my parents' families ended up, or my, my one of my parents' families, my mother's, after a fairly traumatic event that happened to Armenians uh, over a century ago at World War I, where there was a genocide, and what used to be the kind of ancestral homeland of Armenians, many of them in Turkey, they basically had to leave. The ones that got out after a million and a half met their death ended up in the Middle East or in Europe. So one side of my family went to Bulgaria, which is close to Turkey, and escaped through that route. And another went to Syria and by way of Syria to Lebanon. And eventually my father, after communists, came into Bulgaria and he escaped yet again, ended up going to Lebanon. So, you know, part of our family experience, like many other families, is kind of generational escape of various difficult places. So Lebanon was, you know, an idyllic place growing up. It was, you know, it had a phenomenal school system. You know, I, I went to a, an Armenian school. There was, you know, Armenians were a large minority in Beirut. There were several hundred thousand Armenians that lived in a city of a million people. And, you know, there was like 60, 70 schools and 80 churches. You know, the country was itself a real mixture of different cultures, different religions. And it was, a, in that regard, really an ideal place. You know, so had good education, the place itself physically is is also kind of on the Mediterranean, a beautiful place. But of course, as these things go, usually beautiful places get afflicted with bad fortune. And, and Lebanon had its fair share of it. it it's uh, 
partly based on the historic Palestinian issue, which really plagued Lebanon, because that's where a lot of the refugees ended up. Growing up when I was a little kid, we used to see just outside the, the, the downtown area where we lived, large, large settlements of refugees for decades. That kind of creates its own level of distress and, let's say, friction. But that was considered normal at the time. But then over time, all of that and the armaments that people obtained ended up causing a civil war. So in 75, early 75, things kind of got dramatically kind of worse and witnessed, you know, what was about a six-month period of open kind of warfare. And, you know, at 13 years old, on the one hand, it's thrilling because, you know, there were no video games at the time, but we didn't need them either because you looked outside your window and there was literally, like you see now in Ukraine, live rockets flying across. Fortunately, it wasn't exactly where we lived, but once in a while it got pretty close. And so, you know, you kind of got into the habit of running up and down stairs. We unfortunately lived in a high rise. There weren't that many high rises in Lebanon. A high rise for that was 10 stories. And we kept going from the ninth floor down to the basement every time there were sirens. And so with that existence for six months, thank God, my my father at the time, who was quite, you know, he, he had international business and he, he used to do a lot of importing of goods from all over the world. And a lot of the people he knew, if you do that, you, you know a lot of the diplomats in a country from the countries you deal with. And a lot of them said, this is not going to end well. So, you know, he packed us up after six, maybe nine months, and we moved. We moved to Canada. How did you decide where to go in Canada? And what did it feel like to be, what were you, probably 12 or 13 years old? It was an interesting experience. My father was, you know, so he had lived in, in Bulgaria, and he, he spoke actually nine languages because of the, the businesses that he had been involved with. He traded a lot, and he kind of had gone to lots of countries. He's one of the you know, there's a lot of these folks in the Middle East where they do import-export, and therefore they kind of have a, a life outside of the country they live in, and then they kind of have a family and a life for where their base is. So he was in Hungary and in China and in you know Korea, different places, just because of that business. So he looked at where to move. The most logical place for him would have been France, because his education was French. My mother's education had been French. And so you know, my mother actually uh, studied in the French Conservatory in Paris, and she had become a pianist. So they were very familiar with that. On the other hand, their thought in back in 75 was that, you know, Europe was, they felt it would have been pretty crowded. They kind of always imagined North America as this vast expanse of opportunity. <laughs> That's how yeah. people viewed it in the Middle East. That's how they viewed it. So, so really the compromise between Europe and North America was Montreal. And so the only place that, that my father considered relocating us to after he kind of went through this logic, uh, other than Europe, was was Montreal. So we ended up coming there in, in August of 75. And it was quite the change in, 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 you know, a couple of months later, you know, we had to live in snow. We, we hadn't really experienced snow before, you know, public It's not the Mediterranean. It's not the Mediterranean. <laughs> and, you know, the language, you know, it's got a mix of French and English. And we had grown up studying much more English. We knew a little bit of French. So but, you know, that all of those adjustments, truth be told, I relish and I would have been really kind of missed an opportunity to learn how to adjust had I not experienced that. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a great perspective. And so you went to McGill University, studied chemical engineering, and then you went to MIT mm -hmm. and studied biochemical engineering. And, and this was around the time, I think, that MIT began to have its eye on biotech and on really building kind of... A, 
leadership position in biotech. We, we had kind of missed computer science. The West Coast kind of took it and, and Silicon Valley was built out. And there was a real focus here on anchoring biotech in Massachusetts. What was it like to be studying that at the time? It was very groundbreaking stuff. You know, when, when I was studying chemical engineering in Canada, you know, it's a very applied kind of engineering is taught in a very applied way. And so in the summers, I was able to get summer jobs. I worked at Union Carbide, a company that since a major chemical accident in Bhopal, India, many decades ago has disappeared, but it was one of the biggest petrochemical companies. So I worked for them in, a, in an R&D center in a refinery. And that's an experience, you know, to go three months smelling kind of, you know, all the, all the residues of styrene and benzene and all these things they use. Did you do a little detoxing after that? <laughs> I don't know what it did to me, but I, it was, it was quite, quite that experience. But, you know, it yeah. toughens you and you kind of feel like you're doing something, you know, like, you know, it's a, probably what it felt like to build railways, you know, in Western Canada at the time. Yeah. Like kind of, and so between that and then I spent a summer in Ontario, in Sarnia, Ontario, working at a plant that Dow had, Dow Chemicals had at the time. Again, in the R&D side, doing process engineering. But those two experiences were pretty formative because, you know, one, it exposed me to what engineering and science combined could do in creating novelty. But two, I decided I didn't want to be in the mainstay of what chemical engineering was, which is something that has influenced me over time, is that I kind of wanted to go to the edge of the field. And so when I decided to pursue a PhD, it was natural for me to kind of seek out the edge of what chemical engineering was at the time. And it was really two things. One was semiconductor manufacturing because the techniques that were needed to make these, what's called chemical vapor deposition, turns out, even though it makes electronics, the chemical techniques are what determines the feature size. So that was an exciting cutting edge. And then the other cutting edge was biology. And, you know, this was 1983. In 1983, there was maybe a dozen biotech companies. And, you know, I would say that while the the glimmer was in people's eyes. It was by no means an industry, and it was by no means clear if, if it would become an industry. And so, uh, and by the way, again, people don't know this in those early, early days, biotech was viewed to be potentially useful to make ethanol, to make perfumes, to make foods, to make many, many things, of which a subset, and not really the most important one, were therapeutics. So that was the world we were in. So, you know, companies like Monsanto and aluminum companies like Alcoa and stuff, these were all pouring money into Exxon, we're putting money into biotech because everybody thought this could be a whole new tool set. In a short few years, it became clear that the uncertainties of biology and the difficulty of coming up with products would not fit a commodity price. And therefore, if you think about where you apply yourself, you first want to go to the highest margin applications, which albeit required many, many years instead of a shorter path to development. But anyway, that, that was just being worked out. So it was exciting to be there. You know, there were fresh Nobel Prizes that had been given to people who were doing cloning work. And, and, and a lot of that was at MIT and other places, Stanford, etc. So it was a very exciting time. You know, I was there from 83 to 87. My PhD was actually in a relatively scientific end of the engineering spectrum, using engineering almost to reverse engineer the mechanism by which a particular cell does what it does. There was a particular thing we were interested in understanding, and it was really disassembling these. And we're, I'm talking like with my hands as though these are big things. These are things that are that are you know in size angstroms and you know and have in size. It's like a, a thousandth or a ten thousandth the width of a strand of hair. But they're machinery. They're complex machinery. And I got very very interested in 
kind of the prospect that for the foreseeable future, all these parts that nature had in quotations engineered, otherwise known as evolved, would need to be figured out if we were going to do something useful with them. And that's what drew me into biotechnology. This is the part that kind of, I don't know, sends my brain in a spin when I think about biotech is, and I think AI is kind of the same thing, is that, you know, we do have to reverse engineer everything, millions and billions of years of evolution, I guess, to start to then understand how technology and how humans can play a role and impact our biology. And where I always get stuck is safely. How do we unpack all of our cells, all of the bacteria living in our bodies, all of the, you know, which have their own cells? How, how much do we need to know about a human before we start to use biotech solutions to impact that human? Um, well, evidently not much. <laughs> I know, we're about to get there. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying it not in a flippant way, but the human nature, the human activity is such that we do a lot with a little and then we do even more as we learn more. We don't have the patience to first learn everything there's to be known. Part of it is because we don't even know how long it'll take, and yet people are dying and they're sick. And the same thing's gonna happen with climate change, by the way. There's gonna have to be, you know, we can talk about that, but there's gonna have to be things tried, the consequence of which is not gonna be accessible, and it's a risk-reward calculus. And, you know, people have been doing that. I mean, it's not like people knew the essence of seeds when they started breeding them hundreds of years ago. It's not like they knew what it was to give people potions that they made out of plants to treat conditions they had. They really didn't know about either the potions or the people. But you know what? You, this gradualism and this kind of careful trial and error, which does lend itself to some safety concerns and for which we've created in, in the modern society, of course, safeguards and, and regulatory laws and consequences of being uncareful, all of those things are how we make progress. But if we were to wait till we figured out to a knowable percentage of all possible knowledge of things about cells and humans and bacteria in order to act, one, it would be centuries from now. I mean, I really mean that as an estimate. And two, you know, everything that would happen in the meantime would be a, a reversible loss. So I think there is a way forward that is respectful of what we don't know. That's the thing that I always struggle with is the degree to which science has to be filled with humility. And it often isn't, because often we develop expertise, and expertise almost gives people a, a permission to seem all-knowing. And they exercise their expertise and their knowledge because society wants them to. We call these people KOLs and experts and this and that. And there's something to be said about that, but if they lose their humility, if they lose the ability to communicate all that we don't know, that's when it gets dangerous. Not just at the level of the trials we do, et cetera, the products, but just at the level of communication. Because people think we know things that we just don't know. Yeah, that's such a good point. So talking about things we just don't know, COVID-19 hit us in 2020, and Moderna kind of you know went very quickly to becoming a brand name that everyone in our country and, you know, potentially lots of people around the world knew as well. Can you talk first a little bit about founding Moderna back in 2009? What was the vision for the company and your solutions? And then how did that end up intersecting with the perfect opportunity to create a vaccine for COVID-19? All in one minute. <laughs> if you could. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's important 
to just take a quick step back and say that the way we operate, so I, I run a firm called Flagship Pioneering, which is a pretty unusual platform by, by which we make scientific innovations and create companies. And Moderna was the 18th such company that we formed, and it was called LS18 when it was born. So it's its original name before we, we changed it to Moderna was LS18. And now we have, I think, the 91st or 92nd such such entity that's, that's alive, albeit a baby at this point. And so the thing to understand is that we don't start companies by taking academic science and trying to figure out what to do with it. We don't start companies by fixating on an unmet need and trying to find solutions for it. Those are the two traditional ways in which companies get started in our space. We do a little bit different thing, which is we carry out these numerous, numerous explorations by asking questions of what if. What if we could do this? What if this could be real? And that gives us permission to leap, leap way beyond what is the current science and imagine, literally imagine, alternative realities that, if only true, we first try to figure out what good is it. And it is that type of an exploration in the summer of 2010 that led us to become interested in mRNA because we were trying to figure out what if you could actually deliver a molecule to the human body and use the human to make its own drugs. And that concept for a biochemical engineer, having spent the previous 25 years at that time enabling tools and machinery and equipment to make proteins in big fermenters and outside the body, it was an intriguing thing to say, why, don't, why are we doing this even? You could just do all this inside your body. And it's important to understand that because we were neither compelled by the disease, we didn't have any particular disease in mind, nor the particular technology. And we didn't, and by the way, it didn't have to be mRNA either. If we could have been tRNA, it could have been, you know, whatever, another form. Did you decide, okay, it's mRNA or was mRNA being studied and you yeah. said, yeah, that because of these studies? A little of each, a little okay. of each. And the reason is that the mRNA that was studied at the time and several years earlier, now you know it's become much more covered, University of Pennsylvania and several other places had scientists kind of tinkering with it. The level of knowledge about this and the, and the chemical modifications that you need to make it to it, to have it not be kind of toxic to the cells that you, to, that you administer it to, was at a very early stage. So this is back 2005. If you look at the kind of data that one could generate, you could in cells, in a dish, show that by med chemical modifications, the mRNA could at least be tolerated somewhat. That's a very, very far cry from a drug that you put in the body that goes into the liver and makes any protein you want without that type of toxicity. And there was no scientific path between where it was to where it needed to get to. You could say, well, what motivates and what motivated us is the imagination that this could be. And then we came backwards and said, what are the closest things to what we need to make this happen? We found mRNA, we found different delivery approaches, we found many things, but they were not kind of like at their finalized moment where we just took it and then say, okay, let's just do this. And hence the five years and, and, and over a billion dollars we spent in the first five years of the existence of Moderna creating a brand new platform. There was no academic prior to that platform. There were academic bases to the science, bits and pieces, but, and, and we of course benefited from it like you always do when, whenever you're doing something scientific and you do the next rev of it, you're kind of improving. But, but really the assembly of the pieces you needed to have the ability to go from a computer code to a particle containing any mRNA you want injected and making a protein you want, that was a very long journey and one that, that I'm proud to say Moderna took on its own. And when I say on its own, at the time it was a private company 
You know, we had great pharmaceutical partnerships that provided us capital. We had great collaborations with government who provided us capital. This is long before COVID, by the way. These were just kind of the way biotech companies grow. And, and that led us to, for the first time in 2015, actually attempt to put these things in humans. And quite ironically, and it's not really understood out there, despite COVID, is that the first two things we tried in humans as a safety trial were two strains of flu that are believed to be potentially pandemic strains if they enter humans. In other words, these were two strains that had never gotten into humans so far. And so we reasoned this is a safe place to try a new technology because we have not been afflicted with these viruses. But it has some benefit in that if we could do this and the vaccine actually shows neutralization, should the next day or the next decade that virus show up, we already have a vaccine. So you just landed there because they were viruses that had never affected humans? They were flu, and they looked a lot like the ones that had caused pretty significant. So the H1N1 and all these viruses that we've heard about, these were cousins that are found in various avian species that are potentially threatening. Just for like the layman, can you just, what is mRNA? How do you describe it to like a doctor or a consumer? When things are made, to make the proteins that do things that we call, we call life, all the enzymes, all the proteins that bind and signal and all these things, all of that are proteins. And these are strings of amino acid. The in-between DNA and proteins turn out to be another form of a nucleic acid code called mRNA. And it's a ribonucleic acid. And it's a slightly different form than DNA. The chemistry difference isn't that important, but the, the role of it is that it's almost, think of it as I go into a filing cabinet containing master drawings of something that I want to make. I take it out and then I photocopy it. And then I take the copy, put the original back, and I take the copy and then I use the copy to make whatever it is that I want to make, right? That intermediate photocopy is the RNA. It essentially transports the code from the storehouse to the machinery that makes what you want to make. And so you could imagine that if you could come in with a code that wasn't from the dr- filing cabinet, but actually was from some other source, but you get it into the system, it'll make that part because the machinery is completely automatic and just takes mRNA and makes proteins. So go back now. You're testing two different strains of flu. Did it work? As To the extent that we tested, which meant that in phase one human trials, we showed in both cases sufficient immune antibody response that we could show that we could neutralize the, the virus. Of course, should it actually infect humans, which at the time hadn't. So the way you can do that experiment is you can give it to people, they mount an immune response, then you take their blood and you then bring virus outside of the body to that blood and you see the virus be neutralized so it can't infect your cells. That's kind of how you do experiments in this regard. So that's not the same thing as showing in 30,000 people that it protects from getting infected. But it's the first step, especially in flu, where so much has been studied, that usually people believe that if you can raise antibodies, you're going to be able to protect against that infection to to a large extent. So by the way, this was 2015. And I should just fill the gap to get to COVID quickly. Between 2015 and 2020, we spent another billion and a half dollars and expanded our portfolio to probably 20 different drugs and vaccines, 10 in vaccines, 10 in drugs, all were being tested at early clinical stages, 
cancer, cardiometabolic disease, autoimmune disease, rare diseases, just the beginning phases of testing for many, many things. So what changed in the following five years is that we started manufacturing more of these things. We started going into new diseases. And by 2020, the first weeks of 2020, when COVID started becoming a, a reality, we were busy developing this platform for everything other than COVID, because we didn't know about COVID. But the thing to keep in mind, and, and again, this is all lost in the, in the news where people were so shocked that there was such a thing as mRNA. We had, by that time, tried in humans nine different vaccines. And in all nine, we could show that we could make antibodies with mRNA against the target virus. So, okay, so you're sit- just tell me what happened. As you're sitting in your office, co- we start hearing about COVID in China. We have no idea what's going to happen. Did you know, like, w- at what point did you get a sense that this thing could loom over the whole world? And at what point did you and your team feel like, you know what, we could really create an intervention to this disease? Well, that was very interesting because, you know, the very first time that we heard about this was kind of the first days of, of January of 2020. And it was not a pandemic and it was not even known to be a coronavirus. It was, it was thought to be a pneumonia-like disease. And people didn't know what the origin was. They suspected it could be flu. And it was kind of like reports, scant reports that were coming out of China, but there was no specificity to it whatsoever. Within days of that and going into the third week of January, there were more reports coming out of China. There was some reports coming out saying it's a coronavirus. And it was not, you know, kind of a five alarm fire by any means. It was at best kind of an alarm going off with some kind of mystery around it. It's not like the year before there wasn't such similar things in the year before that again. So, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, these pandemics usually start life as no-demics and then they become, you know, kind of like maybe epidemic and then all of a sudden it overwhelms you. And, you know, usually assume it's not a pandemic. And you're right, one out of 100 times it ends up. So that was the experience. People are reluctant to think something is a pandemic. We're seeing it now with monkeypox where people are extremely reluctant because if you call everything a pandemic, then then your system will overreact. And, and just like your own immune system, if everything you see, you go after, then when you see something serious, you're not going to have the capacity to go after. And that's just the reality. Like immune system is got one level higher in all of humanity in the way people behave. And so that's anyway. So So what happened is that in the third week of January, it became clear to us by discussions that my partner in this, the CEO of the company, Stefan Bansell, he actually reached out, I remember pretty distinctly, I remember distinctly because it was, it was one of my daughter's birthday and it was one of the rare occasions where I was in town and I actually had gone out to dinner with her alone. She was studying at MIT at the time. So this was a restaurant right in Central Square. And I got this text from Stefan, which you know I knew he was in the middle of the night because he was in Davos. And he reached out and said, look, I'm, you know, a lot of people are saying this could become more serious. And, you know, we have our plate full. We had 20 different programs. And, you know, they're asking, are we willing to at least make batches of, the, of a potential vaccine quickly in case it becomes serious? There was no death. Who, who's they? So these were the public health folks that epidemiologists and, and you know, WHO, Gavi, the, the entity that, that provides a lot of vaccines to low- and middle-income countries, CEPI that had just been formed in the context of, of, of the, uh, the World Economic Forum. So, so they're very aware of your work. They, they, you know, they, every, all of those. They were all aware of our work. And, and I'll tell you partly why, interestingly, 
And not only because, you know, we've been in those circles and we've kind of shared our, our vaccine work, and it was really the only new thing going on in vaccines going back, you know, a decade or two. It's not like there's, you know, in any given year, there's five different new vaccines come, you know, being worked on, approaches, that is. But more importantly, we also had forged a relationship, a very encouraging one to us, with the team that Dr. Anthony Fauci led at NIH, called NIAID, wherein our teams had worked together on developing a MERS vaccine, MERS being a close cousin to SARS. And it turns out the virus is very similar, and it has a similar spike protein. And we had been in mRNA coding for and showing data in animals that we could actually raise antibodies. So all of those things meant that the people who were talking about this in the public health circles kind of knew that Moderna was one of the options. And they also knew that potentially we could move very quickly because of the nature of the technology. So the first call really was, should we throw our hat in, not to make a pandemic vaccine, because there's no pandemic, but to just quickly make a couple of batches so we could actually see how this looks in animals, and then if needed, go to humans. And we had to make a decision pretty quickly, and we got the board together and made that decision the next day. And our decision was actually interestingly predicated not on the enormity of the threat, because we didn't know about it, but on the opportunity to showcase the speed of our platform Unusual opportunity in that in biotechnology, nothing else gives you the opportunity to go fast. It's like the speed limit in biotechnology is like five miles an hour. And so if you have a a very fast driving car and for one day people say, hey, no speed limit, go. You kind of want to just go out and try it, even though the rest of the time you're going to go slowly because of regulatory pressures, because of all sorts of things. So that's what motivated us in the first instance. Now, of course, thank God we had done that because that meant that we had a few weeks to actually progress. By the time this came to the US, by the time it started causing deaths here in in Italy, I remember very clearly that's when the big, big kind of like, first it was in cruise ships, as you remember, you know, of course China, but you couldn't know what the information from China was saying. So it was very, very controlled. But then the cruise ships, then Italy, then all over Europe, then the US. And, you know, within three weeks of that, you know, kind of come February, middle of February, it was a raging fire. And by middle of March, everything shut down. By that time, we already had our first vaccine in human arms, which was quite remarkable, 44 days. Where did you get, I don't know, what did you call it, the code? How did you get the base for, you know, how did you know what COVID-19 was? Did you get it from China? Did the U.S. have copies of it? Do we share things like that universally around the world? How did, how did you end up with it? Chinese scientists posted the virus code on the internet and everybody who works in this area had that information. That's necessary, but not sufficient to make an mRNA vaccine because first of all, you're getting a code for the whole virus and it's only a small piece of it that is the spike protein, but it's easy to recognize the spike protein given that there's many other viruses that look just like it that we knew about like MERS and the previous SARS. So that's one. And then we had the computational know-how to convert that virus sequence to an mRNA code for our purposes, and there's a lot of optimization we've done over the years, because what we're making is not a photocopy of the virus. What we're making is an engineered construct, and then let alone the LMP that we put it in, these particles. So all of that, but we had it such that we could do that very, very quickly. So 41 days, and it was being tested in humans. 40, I think it was 44, but yeah, in that 40-day window. And that is largely due to the collaboration with NIH that not only 
had worked with us in the past on the scientific side of identifying, for example, what about a spike protein was made it ideal, etc. There was a lot of published work that they had contributed to and others. But also the NIH actually took on doing the phase one trial in partnership with us. So we made the vaccine and we collaborated to get it to them and they started administering this. You know, we had no, you know, overnight infrastructure that we were going to be able to use to do yet another vaccine. We already had 10 in trials. And so all of that is great collaboration. And were you very bullish that we would? Because at that point, I think we had announced Operation Warp Speed and it had been funded. And were you bullish that you would be able to produce this in a kind of around a year time frame, which is what everyone had their fingers crossed hoping? Well, you know, it's all a blur in, for all of us because, you know, that, that time both froze and went really quickly at the same time. So I could tell you there was no OWS in March. The OWS started in May, kind of late May timeframe. And the reason that's important is that we were flying a bit blind at the time as to what would come next. But we felt that doing a phase one trial would essentially prove this was around the time when the former president was gathering executives in the White House and talking about what we needed to do and people were making their commitments and Moderna was there. And basically we said, look, we have our own swim lane and we'll just do what we can. Because at the time, there was nobody else before that that had worked on mRNA vaccines. We were the only game in town. Obviously, subsequently, as you as you know from the press, that Pfizer entered the field working with a German company. But the German company was not working on vaccines at the time. It was, it was a cancer company, essentially, but happened to also have mRNA expertise. And it was reapplied, repurposed for this, which was great. So those few months were a lot more, I'd say, filled with uncertainty. Did we feel bullish? In science in general, in entrepreneurship, you live with this dual state of overconfidence and incredible paranoia that it's not going to work. It's not like you have the average of the two. You have both at once. So if you really sat and thought about it, it should have worked. But we could think of so many things that would go wrong that we kind of thought, what's the chance that even in the first instance, it will show encouraging data? On the other hand, we'd say, well, wait a minute, we did this before and it worked in the other nine cases, so why would it not work in this? So that, you know, kind of almost schizophrenic back and forth between it's not going to work, it's going to work for sure, it's not going to do it. So that's frankly a beautiful kind of tension because it causes you to do everything you can do right. On the other hand, it keeps you humble in realizing that it may not work, which means there should be other bets placed on other technologies, other approaches, until we know which one ends up getting to the finish line. Right. And you talked about Pfizer also like working kind of in parallel with this. Were they using your technology or had they kind of built very similar technology through the cancer work that BioNTech had been doing? You know, I can't say that they were using our technology because I have no way of knowing what technology they were using. They were working with another company in Germany that was working with mRNA quite separate from us to apply to cancer broadly. And, you know, given that obviously all of our work, all of our publications, our patents, et cetera, is meant to be very open to share what we know about how to make mRNA and how to code it, et cetera, then, you know, whether whether that helped or not, I don't know. Suffice it to say that with the scientific expertise that the the German group had, which was really world-class, and the infrastructure, financial muscle and expertise that Pfizer brought to bear, it was a really formidable combination that was useful to us because 
at some level, while we, in hindsight, would rather have been the only one who did this, reality is that it would have been even more stressful to us than it already was, because then anything we did wrong would have just ground everything to a halt. I mean, it's turned out that the mRNA vaccines, by and large, have provided the protection that, at least in the Western countries, have beat back the the virus to the extent that we have. And imagine if that's on the shoulders of a biotech company that had never made a product commercial before. Yeah, so I want to be pragmatic about it. On the one hand, I think that our scientists deserve a ton of credit. On the other hand, during a pandemic, you kind of take all the help you can get. Absolutely. Your scientists deserve a lot of credit. I, I, you know, I think we're in such a better place because it's just an amazing confluence of where you were in the company developmentally and this opportunity to scale it to the extent that you were able to. Given the incredible impact that it's had so far and what you know about the disease and how it transforms, how do you feel about the future of COVID? How much longer do you think it'll be a pandemic? Not that you have to put a time frame on it, but how do you think about it contextually? And what will Moderna be doing to evolve with this particular product as COVID-19 evolves? Well, I already revealed the mindset we had, you know, a couple of years ago, and I would say we're not that far out of that mindset. You know, how I feel about it is extremely relieved and terrified. I am currently extremely relieved that we have not only made the original vaccine, but have on our hands a vaccine with two different strains that seems to provide a wider net of protection, including to Omicron and the most recent variants, the BA4, BA5. So on the one hand, I'm relieved. On the other hand, partly based on the virus and the mutations that are being presented at a fairly dramatic pace and extent, the degree of non-vaccination that continues to persist both in the U.S. and across the world, including the low-to-middle-income countries, the absolute misinformation campaign that seems to be conspiring with the virus to cause people to be massively vulnerable, and the fact that lots and lots of people are living with conditions that make their immune systems unable to muster a, a proper reaction, either too little or too much, in the case of kind of these severe COVID cases, All of that terrified me. And I'm saying that clearly not as a vaccine developer, but as somebody who, you know, has 25 other companies that work in immunology and biotechnology and other things. And we have our job cut out for us. So as people, we may get tired, but the virus doesn't get tired. And it's really a scary notion that we might be fed up with, you know, this and therefore want things to be forcibly going back to normal. And there's no evidence that the the virus will comply. It may. So you could do a scenario analysis and say, okay, some probability that it just kind of says, just kidding, and then becomes a common cold. It may 10 years from now, or it may not. And I think that we need to be vigilant. And unfortunately, you know, when it comes to our health, we generally are fatalistic. You know, we kind of feel like, well, we're going to get sick and die anyway, and You know, we don't like it, but then we just kind of live with it because we want a normal life in between. So these are all things that I worry deeply are going to be missed opportunities by our society to go revisit. You know, when when globally 15 to 20 million people have died to date globally, the numbers that are 6 million that are tracking reported deaths, but there are another 15 million deaths that are completely unexplainable by anything other than COVID. So 15 to 20 people have a million have died. Imagine a war 
that would have taken 15 to 20 million lives. Forget a million lives, forget 100,000 lives, and how we would have reacted. But somehow, because these people are dying from natural causes, we are completely willing to kind of just say, okay, you know, good, we didn't get hit by it, so let's move on. I'm, you know, so sorry you're asking the question that is really troubling to me, but I am, I am very concerned that we're systematically letting our guard down and we're going to be struggling with this economically, health-wise, societally, and it's causing a lot of tensions, you know, across the world that, that I think are going to have real long-term consequences, including long COVID, which is a, a real health consequence of people getting unnecessarily infected over and over again. I really would like the listeners to kind of take this into account. This is not to worry. I mean, like, look, in a way, maybe my having lived in a civil war for a period of time kind of gives me a little bit of the sense that March 13th, 2020, when things closed, I felt like when I was sent home when I was 13 years old. And it, I told my family, I told my friends, and I told my colleagues at work, I said, it's going to be extremely hard to come back. They said, nonsense, we'll be back, because they thought it was a snowstorm. Basically, everybody's only other model for when you shut down is 1978 snowstorm in Boston. But in Lebanon, we didn't go back to work, uh, to, to, to school or work for months and months. And in that case, actually, long after we left for eight years, people didn't have a normal life. And so when you, but, but it turns out as humans, we adapt to these things. But the notion that you adapt by ignoring, as opposed to adapt by by kind of directing some of your resources and your and your time to combating and, and staying safe and some of the time to creating value or, or staying alive, those things are things that I think are almost being messed with by all sorts of other factors that we live in with social media today. And I just think that, you know, we're, we're suffering unnecessary losses. If you were king for a day, what would you have us doing that we're not doing today? I think our whole attitude to healthcare is fundamentally flawed. And I've said that for three years, three and a half years, long before COVID. But COVID was almost like a, you know, a godsend to prove the point, which remarkably is being ignored yet again, which is that I think our relationship with healthcare, what we mean by healthcare is actually sick care. 97% of OECD country spending on health happens after disease. And if only some of it happened before disease, not just with COVID, but in every disease condition, then we would think about protecting and defending health, not staying well, which is kind of a whole nother fitness and wellness. And that's almost become like a kind of like how I look and how I feel. No, no, no. Like you are, you don't go from being well to being sick because the doctor says so, let alone on that day. There are months and years of processes that we now have the science to detect and to intervene with that actually lead you down a path that is irreversibly sickness. If we could intervene and if we could take a lot of resources, say 5% of our spending, 10% of our spending, that would make a, a trillion dollar market and deploy it upstream. So if I was king for a day, I would create a conditions for innovators and regulators and reimbursement approaches for things that are pre-treating, pre-patients that have pre-diseases so as to delay and avert what ultimately becomes a disease. That's what I would do. It's the exact same response as after World War II, where rather than just thinking the military just makes weapons, people said, well, wait a minute, let's spend some money upstream on surveillance, on deterrence, on all sorts of things, and we can still make weapons, but let's not use them at the first sign of problems. That mindset doesn't exist in health. That's what I would work on. I agree with you, and it's so interesting to me that so many leaders in healthcare agree 
with you that we have a sick care industry as opposed to a health care industry that we don't work on resiliency or prevention nearly as much or spend money there as much as we do on sick care. I feel like I, we need to end there because I think it's brilliant. And maybe we can talk about health and wellness in another conversation. But thank you so much for talking with us today. I could ask you a million more questions and it's very interesting. Your life is very interesting. The work you do is very interesting and we're all very grateful for the particular work you did to help fight the COVID-19. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And also thanks to the Shaw Family Foundation for everything you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Nubara Fayan. Nubar's approach to investment and innovation is helping to save lives every day, and his foresight is invaluable to preparing for whatever challenges come our way. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.